welcome. You are listening to OPOD's Occupational Health Podcast. This is a podcast series by the Occupational Health Clinics for Ontario Workers, where we discuss the challenges of current and emerging trends in occupational health and offer effective prevention strategies to empower workers. Welcome to this podcast titled Paramedics, the Untold Story. I'm your host, Sonia Lau, occupational hygienist at the Toronto OCAL Clinic, and I'm joined with my colleague, James Muccio, who is an occupational hygienist as well, and he works out of the Windsor Clinic. We are both certified industrial hygienists, certified by the Board of Global EHS Credentialing, and we are both Canadian registered safety professionals. Together, we bring you 45 years of experience in the field of occupational health, safety, and clinical occupational health. Today's podcast focuses on the untold story of exposures amongst first responders, and our focus is going to be paramedic. The clinics have worked on a few clinical cases of late and have noticed a sort of trend which paramedics share amongst each other with regards to sharing of exposures similar to those of firefighters. You're probably wondering, how is that possible? Generally speaking, they do face similar exposure pathways and they are not as protected as firefighters would be. So this podcast is to heighten the awareness around paramedics and exposures. So when we speak of clinical cases at OCAL, we are referring to workers who have come forward to our clinics who believe they have been occupationally exposed or incurred their diseases through their workplace. And then we'd investigate the situation from both a medical and clinical occupational hygiene perspective to see if we can validate these claims and support them scientifically and, of course, medically to fight for compensation of their health. So we've had a few such cases come our ways in the last few years. But first, let's get through some background information on this subject matter. James, help us. All right. Thank you, Sonia. So I want to talk a little bit about the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board, or WSIB. Their accepted diseases and years working as a firefighter. First of all, it is generally accepted that firefighters are exposed to a number of carcinogens and other substances. So they can be exposed to vinyl chloride, benzene, petrochemicals, carbon monoxide, toluene, phosgene, just to name a few. So what WSIB has done is they have what's called prescribed cancers. If you're a firefighter, say, for 10 years and you get brain cancer, then your claim will already be accepted. I'll give you a few more examples. So there's bladder cancer and then being a firefighter for 15 years. There's also kidney cancer, being a firefighter for 20. And then there's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is being a firefighter for 20 years. So there are a number of cancers that are recognized in Ontario. I believe there is 17. And for the province of British Columbia, there's actually 18. James, that's interesting. What are the differences there? So it's interesting. I did look up some of the differences. In British Columbia, they include thyroid cancer and pancreatic cancer. And a difference, so in Ontario, WSIB, they do actually have an acceptable one for skin cancer as well. So one of the clinical cases I had worked on um, involved a paramedic turned firefighter, and he 
had come forward to us, he was shy a few years um, to be accepted for one of his disease claims, which was for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And as you just mentioned, James, for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, WSIB requires 20 years of exposure. He only had 16 years of exposure. So I had to look at his case and see if there were other exposures that weren't considered in his case. And it was quite difficult, although we did make a claim for his overtime. But as I delved further and further, I came to understand that firefighters generally don't spend a whole chunk of their career time, let's say in a year span, at a fire. Yet they have all these prescribed cancers that are allowed over certain years of exposure. So if you hold on to that, you have to un- try to figure out, well, okay, if you're not spending that much time at a fire, but you can incur cancer, where are the exposures coming from? So we had to then look at, well, where else do firefighters spend their time? At fire halls. And you're probably thinking, well, oh, they went back to talking about firefighters. Well, In this case, when the patient was a paramedic, which was before becoming a firefighter, again, remember, I'm I'm trying to look for more years of exposure. We had to go back in his paramedic years to find out, well, how many times was he stationed at fire halls? And in the previous year, so we're talking about 70s, 80s, 90s in those years, this was common practice. I'm sure in certain areas that are not metropolitan areas, There are folks that are still doing this where ambulance support services are also in shared communal areas with firefighters as well. So it still could be happening into present day. Point being, there's tons of exposures that are occurring in fire halls or had occurred in fire halls in those days because there was lack of ventilation, proper segregation, etc. Contaminants coming back from fires or going to fires. So that's one of the biggest things that we found was paramedics are exposed to similar exposures as firefighters, not entirely at fires. We're going to talk about that. But when they're sitting in the fire halls, there's exposures occurring right there. Yeah, that's interesting. So what about ventilation in the fire halls? Right. So today the situation may be different. I say that without confidence because there are ventilation requirements for having exhaust nozzles put onto the tailpipes of these engines so that when they start, when they're revving the engine, the exhaust is pulled through the ventilation. But the thing is, those systems are not maintained as they should be. For this particular patient, there was no ventilation. Um, It came later on in his career. He had already incurred the exposures, but there was lack of ventilation. So anytime the engines would start, so there would be lots of diesel, there was no segregation in the fire hall. So a common area or the kitchen and rested. All these areas were like open concept because there was no segregation of the rooms proper segregation, and there was no ventilation to provide enough power to exhaust the contaminants out. The other thing is when the firefighters returned from the emergency calls or a fire, they would hang their bunker gear in common areas. And with this patient, and he worked in numerous fire halls in his career, he had like a 38 to 40 year career. He often stated that the bunker gear was hung near the kitchen area. 
So if you're a foodie like me, you're hanging out in the kitchen a lot and uh, you're being exposed to the off-gassing contaminants from the gear. And this has been scientifically proven. This is not just anecdotal information. I had to prove all of this in my patient case to support these claims that were being made by the patient. So there's a lot of research on it for firefighters and their exposure, but there's not much research on exposures for paramedics and what they go through throughout their careers. Okay. Oh, wow. These are some really good points, Sonia. So I hope our audience is taking a look at the similarities between the paramedics and firefighters. And if you visualize at a fire, you can see a paramedic and you can see a firefighter. So if you visualize what they're both wearing, who's protected more? Well, it's obviously the firefighter. He's the one going into the actual fire, but there's a lot of exposure that occur outside of the structure that's on fire. So there are what's called fire zones. One's called hot and one's called cold. So the hot zone includes the area where direct or immediate threats of exposure occur. People also call this immediately danger to life and health or IDLH. So where those kinds of conditions exist. So in this area, firefighters must use special hazmat protective equipment and Typical person protective equipment worn during fire incidents would include this bunker gear that you mentioned, Sonia. In those cold zones, these provide a space for command operations. So there is contaminants that do make it to the cold zone. However, this is more of a outside the hot area, not really as exposed. So it's important that you know our audience know the difference between those two zones. Right. But those definitions don't remain solid depending on the weather that particular day. If it's a really windy day, the warm zone quickly becomes a mesh of the hot zones in terms of the contaminants. And the cold zone can become a warm zone in terms of the exposures very quickly when you have other turbulence in the area affecting those definitions. So Um, could you then assume that a paramedic could be found in a hot zone when they weren't planned on being in a hot zone. In my particular patient's case, he did explain that, yes, at certain times, and I'm talking like 70s, 80s, there were times where he may have gone into the bordering areas of the hot zone for duty purposes. But in this patient's case, yes, he did work in the hot zone at some times. I wanted to go back to the visualization, if you had it, with regards to comparing the paramedics, their uniforms, and the firefighters and their uniforms and, and safety gear. This particular patient also shared some photographs, and one of them, they were at a vehicle fire. Paramedics and firefighters were shoulder to shoulder in this photograph, and the vehicle was still on fire. Again, today, maybe these practices don't exist, but that picture showed the difference in protection for both occupations. And I think the zones went out the window in that particular example because there were a lot of support personnel in the same zones as the firefighters without proper protection. Historically speaking, if you're a paramedic and you can relate to some of these scenarios or stories, you might want to check in with coworkers who might have some sort of disease and you might start thinking about the fact that, well, maybe this is from work. 
And that's what it is that we do, James and I. We help folks who come forward and help to validate if it's possible scientifically, is my disease related to my exposures from my workplace? Again, we just wanted to bring the awareness and hopefully this podcast will support as well. Excellent. Thank you, Sonia. So I just want to change the conversation to looking a little bit at what scientific information is out there. So what I mean by that is what is in the published literature regarding this topic, paramedics, firefighters, and exposures. And there are some recent studies, two in particular. So one's actually from 2020, so very recent. And it's about the assessment of the toxicity of firefighter exposures. Now, in their study, they say that there's many products of combustion with known toxic effects, or they include carbon monoxide, hydrogen cyanide, benzene, formaldehyde. They list a whole bunch and they finish with firefighters and associated personnel at a fire scene may be exposed. The associated personnel includes paramedics. Okay, so they're saying, yeah, not only are firefighters exposed, but everyone else there is exposed as well. And so there's actually another study, even newer, so from 2021, and they looked at cancer among emergency medical service professionals. So basically everyone that's a first responder, they concluded with EMS professionals are often on the scene of fires and other chemical exposures occur. And they're concluding with EMS professionals have the potential for increased cancer risk, but little is known about cancers that affect them specifically. So then they go on and they say, you know, all these EMS professionals are often involved in fire ground operations with firefighters but they don't have access to the same respiratory protective equipment as firefighters, which we've been saying throughout this podcast. And they do recognize that they are in and around the fire scene and in fire zones with the firefighters. So that's the latest uh, that's in the scientific literature that we could find. That's really great, James, that we've had this recent literature on this particular topic. This patient had come forward to me in 2019. So at that time, I didn't have access to these papers. So this is great that somebody is out there recognizing, and it's not just us, that paramedics and emergency response personnel also have potential for exposures for deadly diseases to be incurred, occupationally speaking. Speaking of another carcinogen, which is outside any of the zones, and it's your sleep patterns and prolonged work shifts because usually emergency response personnel are working various shifts. So there's a lot of sleep disruption. And as you know, shift work with circadian disruption has been classified as a probable human carcinogen, group 2A, by IARC, the International Agency for Research on Cancer. So paramedics and emergency responders would fall into this category as well. On top of this, I wanted to add Although the cold zone from the fire perspective is considered to be the safer area, it's not. The exposure to another carcinogen that's been confirmed, which is diesel engine exhaust. So what's happening in the cold zone? The firefighters, naturally, most of them are at the fire in the hot zone. The support personnel who are waiting for commands or waiting for other things to happen, the police officers, the paramedics themselves, whomever else, they're standing around and the engines are usually idling. 
depending on where you are, you could have a confined area and you have these engines idling and you have exposure to diesel engine exhaust. It could be a really hot day and it's really humid and the diesel engine exhaust has nowhere to go. So you're inhaling this diesel engine exhaust while you're waiting. And if you have your own ambulance quarters, which that is also something that we're familiar with when taking in the histories of these paramedics of late, clinically speaking. They speak of ambulance quarters or you're stationed at hospitals and you have your ambulances there and you're in an area, you might be in the parking lot underground. So you'll have diesel engine exhaust exposure there as well if the ventilation isn't robust enough to prevent you from those exposures. So Recently, there was an article, James, I don't know if you had a chance to read it. It was in the Canadian Occupational Health and Safety magazine, and it was about the paramedic union wanting to have a committee established for paramedics. So it's called the Paramedic Services Committee. As they state, and I'm quoting Bikram Chavla, who is the chief of the Toronto Paramedic Services, says that the creation of this collaborative committee is a vital investment in the physical, emotional and psychological well-being of our paramedics, where they spoke about fatigue and burnout. So hopefully, if we have more and more research that that is coming along on paramedics and first responders, this is something that they will start discussing. If they hear this podcast, they can come to OCAL for help with regard to prevention and preventing exposures in their paramedics. Do you have anything to add, James? Maybe what also will come out of this committee is occupational diseases, maybe bring brought forth from the paramedic associations and then going from there. All good stuff. Yes. So hopefully with this podcast, we've helped put paramedics on the grid with regards to occupational disease. And we want to ensure that we assist with continued awareness and prevention to protect them and other first responders. So in wrapping up, let us know of any other topics you may want to discuss, or if you have any questions about what we discussed today, please do connect with us via email or let James and I know if you need any assistance, you can find our contact information on our website. We're here to serve you. Have a great day. For more information about this podcast, including show notes and companion materials, go to our website, www.ohcow.on.ca. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast channel to ensure you receive notification of our latest episode. As well, check us out on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for joining us.